Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So we're finishing the second chapter. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 911. And these early chapters of, um, of Acts are looking at the early church, looking at the New Testament church. And we saw so far that after 40 days of, of, of teaching his disciples, the resurrected Christ ascended into heaven. And before he ascended, he told his church to wait, to not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit who would give them power, power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then 10 days after Jesus went on to heaven on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the church with the sound of a mighty and rushing wind and, and tongues of fire. And the immediate manifestation of, of the Spirit's power was he gave the disciples the ability to speak in languages that they didn't know. But there were people in Jerusalem who understood that was their native language, and they heard these men speaking about Jesus in their own language. And this miraculous display of the, of the Holy Spirit, it got their attention. The people here, it got their attention. They were amazed. They were, well, how did this happen? What does this mean? And Peter answered their question. And that's what we looked at last week. We saw Peter's response to this question. And we saw that Peter provided for us a model testimony. Peter gave to us a, a template for how we could follow Jesus' command to be his witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in response to Peter's testimony, we saw that 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 souls were added to the church. That was a 25-fold increase in that one sermon. Well, last week we looked at the model testimony. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a model congregation, a model church. In verses 42 to the end of the chapter, we're given this description of this, the spiritual life, the, the everyday practices, the philosophy of ministry of this newly formed New Testament church. And just like Peter's model testimony provides for us a template, well, this model congregation also provides for us a template of what a congregation should look like. And as we look at this ideal congregation and we compare it to Northgate, it, it's, it's easy for us to become discouraged because we'll see how far we fall short of the description here. But it also gives us encouragement. It gives us something to strive for. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to be, to be praying and, and, and looking at this and saying, this is what we want to be like. So hear now the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for your spirit to be with us in a mighty and powerful way. Lord, we look at this early church, and in some ways it is so different than us, but that's what you call us to be. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that we will be changed and we will want to be like this church and you will make us like this church. And Lord, this church, it says day by day, those who were being, they were adding, you were adding those who were being saved. That's what we want to see. We want to see every single day people saved through the work of this church, through our testimony. 
Father, we pray that you will be seen and you will be glorified in this sermon. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do this morning is simple. I'm just going to go through this passage verse by verse, and I'm going to list out the characteristics that we see of this ideal church. And I want us to be thinking how we at Northgate, how we stand up. I, I, I want us to be honest. How do we stack up in respect to these characteristics? But I want us more so to be praying. Not just now, but even as we go home, after through the coming weeks, as we, as we prepare for this meeting that we're going to have next month, uh, next uh, on, on the 11th, or the 8th, I'm sorry, of, of November, I pray, Lord, that you will be praying how we can become like this. And these are some of the issues that we're going to be discussing as we're doing this brainstorming session. And we're going to see how we can become Jesus' witnesses to our community here in Albany. Better serve. How do we can better serve and, and, and better engage our community? So let's just dive right in. The first characteristic that we see, and I believe this characteristic is the foundation to all the other characteristics. And what I'm calling this first characteristic, applied doctrine. Applied doctrine. And we see this in the first half of verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the doctrine, and the fellowship, that's applying the doctrine. See, oftentimes we see the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, we see this as two separate characteristics. But I think grammatically, as I was studying this verse, and I was looking at this, looking at the, the Greek, and even the way the ESV um, uh, groups it, I saw that these are, are, are together. We, we see the same thing with the breaking of the bread and the prayers. They are connected so what I see here is the apostles teaching in the fellowship. These are the foundational characteristics. And this is what I'm calling applied doctrine. So to be a Christian church, we must follow the teachings of Jesus, right? It makes perfect sense. We have to follow the teachings that he taught to his apostles. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit have been preserved for us in Scripture. Well, this is our basis. This is the doctrinal teaching that, that, that is the heart. This is the foundation of the church. And this is the whole reason why we have creeds. This is why we have confessions. This is why we have catechisms. And it's the purpose is, is, is to clearly state the doctrinal teachings of the church. And you see, oftentimes these, these confessions and catechisms are attacking a specific error. If, if the church has got off base in a certain way, the, the, the church comes together and writes a confession, a catechism, to get them back on track. And those of you who come to our... Um, Theology class on Monday night as we go through the Westminster Confession. As you go through it, you see that this confession is geared at specific problems that were in the church when it was written. And it may not be applicable to us today. And oftentimes we say, you know, why did they put that in? And we have to explain the situation that was at place, at, at, at heart. So we see this throughout the church. There are confessions. Even, even in the early church, even in Scripture, we see confessions. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following is something that scholars believe was an early confession of the church. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what did he receive? He's giving this, this creed that he's received. And he summarizes the, the teaching of the apostles. And this is the creed. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. This is the creed that the early church was saying. There are other churches that were developed throughout church history. We have the Apostles' Creed. We have the Nicene Creed. We have the Athanasius Creed. And all these creeds define biblical orthodoxy. The teachings contrary to these creeds are considered heretical. Are not, they're not part of the church. As we sang, as we'll sing, actually, as our, as our um, response, song of response, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. 
Well, how do we know Jesus Christ? It's only through the teachings that we find in Scripture. See, there are many people. There are many people who claim to be Christian. They may come and knock at your door, but they proclaim a different Scripture, a different Jesus. They follow a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Some of them will, will follow a Jesus who is who's only, he's not God. He's just a man. He's a good man. He's a good example. We have to follow his example. This is the Jesus of liberalism. Or there's some who, who uh, worship a Jesus who is a created being, being, but not the eternal God. This is the ancient heresy of Arianism. And we see that same, uh, same by some of our neighbors. Some of the people who come knock at our door. There are some people who say Jesus is not God. He's, he's really the archangel Michael. That's what the Jehovah's Witness teaches. Or, or Jesus is the, the physical son of Elohim and, and Mary. And his brother is Lucifer. This is the Jesus of Mormonism. And my friends, these, they worship a different Jesus. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is a Jesus who cannot save. Now, there are others who claim to be Christian, but rather than look to God's word and to find what God's will is and how he wants to be worshipped, they say, how would I want to be worshipped? How, how, how do I think God should be? What my God would do? Really what they're doing is they're worshiping themselves. Now, as a as church, Northgate, as a denomination, the PCA, I think we're, we're strong on this characteristic. I think we do seek to, to ground our theology and ground our worship in Scripture. And, and I think one of the, uh, on the majors, on the essentials, I think we are right on. We are in agreement with God's will. We want to learn. We want to know God better. We want to learn theology. We, we want to study our Bibles. And I think this is a good thing. In fact, I think if there is no desire among Christians to know God more, to, to read the Bible, to, to have a deeper appreciation, uh, a deeper knowledge of, of his will and of his attributes, and, and I would question, is this person really even a believer? Is this person regenerate? See, one of the first signs of regeneration, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is that we have a, a genuine love for God. We have a, a desire to know him fuller. A genuine desire to spend time in his presence, spend time with his word. Now, I remember when I became a believer nearly 30 years ago now, I had this insatiable appetite for God's word. I, had, I, I couldn't learn enough theology. I, I wanted to worship. I wanted to be in prayer. I, I just couldn't get enough. I, I was like the sponge, just soaking it all in. I was probably a little annoying because everyone I would talk to, I wanted to talk about Jesus. I wanted to know him better. I wanted to love him better. But notice that this, I said this first characteristic of this model congress, not simply a love of doctrine, but it's doctrine applied. Because I think doctrine, I think a true understanding of the apostles' teaching must by necessity lead us to Christian fellowship. It must lead us to love for our brothers and sisters. And that's why the text says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. See, a true understanding of doctrine, the apostles' teaching, must lead us to action. We must do something with the knowledge that we know. It must lead us not only to love God, but also to love others who are made in his image. And most especially to love Christians, those who Christ died for, our brothers and sisters. And I think we have a, a falsely divided these two into doctrine and, and, and service when they're really together. It's, it's a false dichotomy. That says a person can have knowledge of biblical teaching, but it not naturally lead them to love their brothers and sisters as expressed in, in Christian fellowship. See, an unbeliever, say, a, say an atheist uh, professor at some secular university, he can know the content of the Bible better than a believer. For that matter, the devil himself knows, knows more theology, more Bible than any of us. He, he saw it, he lived through it, but he hates it. 
He hates God. The unbeliever doesn't believe it. It's, it's no different than studying Greek mythology. But the believer, the believer who has true knowledge, knows that it's true and, 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 and wants to have an intimate knowledge of Christ and they submit to Christ. And this is the type of doctrine that, that must lead us to action. It must lead us to Christian fellowship. And the word fellowship that we have here, the Greek word is koinia. And basically what it has to do is holding something in, partnership, in common. It basically literally means partnership. So the fellowship we hold with other believers comes from our common relationship to God, our common relationship, our unity in Christ. So think about any, any human relationship that you have. Think about uh, um, there's always something that we hold in common that forms the basis of this relationship. Think of your coworkers. Think of your classmates. Think of sports, if you're on a sports team. Think of sports fans, even family members. All of these relationships are based on something we hold in common, whether, whether it's a job, we have the same job, whether it's a, a school, whether it's a team, whether it's a family. But all of these things are temporary, right? You can change jobs and you have different coworkers. You can change schools and then have different classmates. You can be on a different team or roof. Your, your team might be doing so bad that you decide to root for another team. All of these things are temporary. But our fellowship that we have in Christ, that is eternal. And it's the most important connection that we can have. And look, look, look around here this morning. Look at it. these people that are, that are united to you in Christ. You are literally going to spend forever with them. Just think about that. Forever we will be together. In, in 10 million years, I'm going to see Jack, and we're going to talk, and he's probably, we're going to have great conversations in 10 million years. 10 million years, I'm going to see Chi May and Marshall, probably be older then, but we'll see him. We're going to see, we're going to be together for all eternity. That is the, the, the strongest bond that we have. So if our doctrine, if our knowledge of God doesn't lead us to fellowship, doesn't want, lead us to wanting to, to know and to love and to enjoy and to serve his people? Again, we need to question, do I truly know God or do I simply know facts? So this is the first characteristic of the model congregation. They devoted themselves to, to applied doctrine. They, they loved God, they loved each other, and they wanted to know more about God, and they wanted to spend more time together. The second characteristic that we see is that they were devoted to worship, to worship what we're doing right now. We see this in the second half of verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So the breaking of the bread here, this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And the prayers, you notice the, the definite article says the prayers. It's not prayers, not generic prayers. It's the prayers. This is talking about a formal prayers that were part of a corporate worship service. And worship was central. Worship is central. Worship is essential for any church, the model church. See, a church that doesn't worship, this is not a church. Remember ruling elder Jeremiah Pitts, he would frequently say, worship is the most important thing that we do. It's the most important thing to do. Not just as a church, it's the most important thing that we do as image bearers of Christ, as Christians. We are made to worship. And again, if there's not a desire to gather together, if there's not a desire to offer up praises to the one who is worthy of all praise, we must question, do I truly know him? Do I, have I been regenerate? And notice that these verses say that they devoted, they devoted themselves to both this applied doctrine and to worship. Devoted. It didn't say they just casually did it. The word devoted, it signifies something that is, is primary, of primary importance in their lives. It was not a casual thing. They didn't just do it if they had nothing better going on. This was what they lived to do. This was primary. This was central. I would be bold to say 
that this learning and this applying doctrine and this fellowship and this worship, this was not something something that they did. This was the primary thing in their lives. Primary thing they did. It was the most important thing in their lives. Out of anything that they did, the most important thing was for them to worship. And it occupied a large portion of their time. Verse 46 says that day by day, they were worshiping in the temple. And this is most likely the temple courtyard. This would really be the only place that was large enough for, remember this church is over 3,100 people. They would gather together. Day by day, they met in the temple. Every day. But also says day by day, they met in smaller groups in people's homes. <clears throat> so they were worshiping not just every day, but they were worshiping multiple times a day. And here's where it's going to be painful. Here's it's going to be painful. I ask us, is worship the most important thing in our lives? The most important thing. If you've listed everything more important than even spending time with your family, certainly more important than your job, certainly more important than watching football or any other sports or any other entertainment or vacation, is it the most important thing in your life? Are we this devoted? Is worship and studying and fellowship, is that our priority? Are we in God's word every day? Are we reading our Bibles every day? Or do we have to find our Bibles, blow off the dust on them? Do we have family worship every day? Do we have prayers every day? Do we have fellowship with other believers every day? And you got to remember, these, these disciples were not meeting for just an hour and a half on, on once a week. And, and don't say, well, they, they weren't as busy as us. We're, we're too busy. We don't have more time than that. you got to remember, at this time, the average person worked 12 hours a day, six, maybe seven days a week. We were, not, they're not, we're not more busy than them. It's just a difference in priority. And then there was a time, there was a time when it was a norm for Christians to meet for worship several times a week, twice on the Lord's Day. We're now one of the fewer churches, even in the PCA, I think less than a quarter of the churches in the PCA actually have an evening service. And even in our evening service, we have fewer than half the people we have in the morning. And there were other churches, I remember Catholic churches, Anglican churches, they would meet every day, they'd have masses every day, they would have morning prayer, evening prayer. Again, most of that has pretty much gone by the wayside. I, I would pretty much say, if you, if you look at what you think a, a mature Christian does on the Lord's Day, this is what they were doing every day. Now, you might be thinking right now, and, and rightfully so, that this type of devotion is, is completely unrealistic. I'm sure most of you are thinking that what I'm saying is completely unrealistic. There's John going off crazy rant again during his sermons. And the reason is our modern worship paradigm is different. See, the current view about worship and, and church it's really that it's boring. I mean, that's what I thought. That's probably what most people think. It's boring. It's something that we, we do because we have to do. We know that the Lord wants us to do it. We know, we may even know that it's good for us. We may, it, it may be like, you know, eating your vegetables. I, I think uh, Renee described our worship service as eating vegetables. It may be like eating vegetables. We know it's good for us, but we don't really enjoy doing it. No one really enjoys eating vegetables. Or, or we may be happy after the fact when we do that. That's how we look at, at, at worship service. But for the most part, that's not something we want to do. Worship is not something we want to do. Now, this was not the view of this congregation in Acts, this model congregation. Worship was the highlight of their lives. This is what they, they, they looked forward to. This is what they wanted to do. There's no way that they could spend so much time doing it every day if this was not their view. So what was the difference? What's the difference between this model church and, and our current church? Why do we see people wanting to go, and, and now we, we, we kind of suffer as we hold our nose as we're eating, eating our vegetables? What is the difference? Well, I think we see the answer in verse 43, and this is our next characteristic of the model church. And see that they were both keenly aware 
and in awe of God's presence during worship. They were aware of God's presence with them in worship. They were in awe of God's presence. Let me read in verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. See, to put it in, in a word, worship for them was supernatural. Worship was supernatural. They spent so much time studying and fellowship and in worship because God was clearly present in these activities. And when they saw God, they were filled with awe. They saw the miraculous signs and wonders. They were filled with awe. Now, we know that we, we've talked about this before. These signs and wonders were really evidence that the apostles were doing God's work. We don't believe that these signs and wonders continue today. But just because we don't see them in, in, in today, because you know, today we have Scripture. Scripture is the, is the way that we confirm these things. But just because we don't see them doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not active. He is active. He is active mightily. He, is, he, is in the, he is, illuminates Scripture for us. He, he, is, he inspired the Word. He is active in our worship service. He is not silent. Not at all. The problem, the problem is for the most part, we are too dull to recognize the Holy Spirit's activities. See, we've been so distracted, so distracted by the noise of this fallen world and the noise of our secular culture that we cannot see. We cannot be in awe of God's creation and God's presence. It has become boring to us. And I'm not just talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers have no ability. They're not, if they're not regenerated, they cannot see God. They don't have the ability to see God. But we who have been regenerated, we have that ability. But we've allowed this, the God's voice to be drowned out by the noise of this world. I remember over the summer, we went on a cruise to Alaska. And I remember one day, the cruise ship pulled into Glacier Bay. It was the most amazing, most amazing thing. We were up there, and, and you're seeing these glaciers 200 feet tall. We're seeing these icebergs going by in the water. Beautiful, majestic mountains. Mountains that were carved by the glaciers. And I'm just saying, my jaw is dropping as I'm looking at it. But you know, there are people, I remember down on the cruise ship in the casino, in the restaurants, in the arcade. They're like, oh, great, I'm glad people are up on, we, we can get, get to our food faster. They were completely oblivious to this most amazing thing, and, and, and pictures don't do it justice. And that's kind of how we are. We, we have an audience with the living God, and we're just like, eh, whatever. We, we, we'd rather be looking at our phones. That's how it is. And, 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 and we have our live stream, and, and I'm glad we have our live stream. And it, it's good, and it allows people who, who live in, uh, away or people who are traveling to, to, to still be part of it. But live stream is not worship. It is not worship. You can hear the content of the service, but you, you, you can hear the songs, but you don't experience the awe. You don't experience the awe on the live stream. And this is, this is, this is not new. Years ago, George Whitfield, he was a, uh, a, a, one of the greatest preachers the church ever knew during the Great, uh, great Awakening. And George Whitfield was asked by someone if he could have his sermons put in print. And Whitfield gave this reply. He said, well, I have no inherent objection, if you like, but you will never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and the thunder. So you can't put the lightning and thunder of the sermon on the printed page. And the problem we have today is there are so many options for us to listen to great preachers. You can listen to preachers much, much better than me, much better than Caleb, much better than Nathan. You can listen to the greatest preachers uh, on, on the Internet, and you can listen to great, greatest speakers, and, and, and the content will be great. But you won't get the lightning. You won't get the thunder. You won't get the Holy Spirit. You won't get the awe from watching something online. You just can't do it. 
So the question is, how do we sharpen our ears? How, 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 do we, how do we sharpen our eyes? How do we experience this awe of God's supernatural Holy Spirit presence? In other words, why are we so dull? Why are we so dull of God's presence in our worship? Well, I think a large part of it has to do with how we prepare. And I know Nathan talked about this a few weeks ago in Sunday school. How do we prepare ourselves to enter God's presence? Or maybe a better pre- question is, do we prepare at all? Right, think about it. If I was going to have an audience with the King of England, I, was going to, I, got, I got summoned to Buckingham Palace, all expense paid to, to London, and I'm going to go meet with the, with the, with the king or, or meet with the president or meet with the governor, <clears throat> wouldn't I prepare? Wouldn't I be sure that I was on time? Or, or would I show up you know, 20 minutes late and say, how are you doing, Chuck? I'm glad I'm finally here. No. We'd be on time. We'd be in the best frame of mind. We'd be on our best behavior. We'd be careful not to do say, or say anything that would embarrass us or fail to do, show honor due to the person with whom we're meeting. So if this is how we would meet for, for a human, King Charles is a human, President Biden is a human, our governor is a human, if, we, if that's how we would act, meeting with a fellow man, how should we prepare to meet the living God, to be in his presence? And the truth is, few of us prepare for our encounter with God during our Lord's Day worship. Frequently we're rushed, frequently we're distracted, frequently we'll arrive late. How can, how can we expect to experience awe when our minds are not even present in the worship service? How can we expect to be aware of the Lord's still, small voice speaking when we can't stay awake because we were up late Saturday night? And even here at Northgate, I mean, I, I think of this, the rush we have. There's so much going on in the morning. We have Sunday school. We have kids coming in. We're getting to nursery, uh, gathering. It's even hard for us to get ready and, and really to prepare our hearts to worship. I mean, it's something I think we can do better with at here at Northgate. So, so far we've seen that this model church was devoted to applied doctrine and worship. They regularly experienced God's supernatural presence. They were filled with awe during the worship. The next characteristic we see of this model congregation was that they practiced radical generosity. Radical generosity. We see this described in verses 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And these verses need a little bit of explanation because I think they're so frequently misunderstood. First of all, these verses do not advocate communism or socialism. We need to realize the biblical paradigm was of of personal ownership of material. We see this in verse 46 where it says they were breaking breads in homes, individual homes. We see this also other places where it's clear that they, they owned their own property. This, the, 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 this was an acknowledgement the homes belonged to, to individuals. Secondly, nowhere do we see that this type of sharing was mandated by the church or mandated by the government or forced, nor was there a sense of entitlement by those who, were, who received or a sense of, of bitterness by those who, who provided. We see this in the end of verse 46. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. See, those who received were glad. They were thankful for what they received. And those who provided, they provided out of their generosity, not out of compulsion. So these verses do not advocate, or the early church did not participate in a, a form of communism that we saw in, in places like the former Soviet Union. But just because these verses don't advocate communism doesn't make them any less countercultural. This type of radical generosity, this is something that is almost never seen 
among even the most mature Christians. See, while each person had their personal stewardship over their individual resources, they understood that these resources belonged to the Lord and not to them. They were not to be hoarded for their own use. They were not to be used for their own comfort. They were to be used for the Lord's needs and the needs of God's people. See, we need to remember that that God is the source of all of our blessings, all of our material blessings. He owns it all, and he distributes as he sees fit. And he doesn't distribute these resources evenly. He gives some many resources and others few resources or different resources. And the reason he does this is he wants us to need each other. No one person has everything. One person may have material wealth. Another person may have spiritual wisdom. They need each other. That's the reason the Lord doesn't give us everything and doesn't give us equal. He wants us to need each other. And this view, this view is countercultural. Do we truly believe that, that all of our material resources belong to the Lord and they are to be used first and foremost for the furthering of his kingdom? Or do we still think that they belong to us? And our first priority is the furthering of our own kingdom and our own comforts. But in this model congregation, the people showed radical generosity. They gave until it hurt. They were selling their possessions. They were giving to those in need. They were not just simply providing a tithe of their income. They saw all of it belonging to the Lord. And this type of, of, of generosity is seldom seen, even in the most mature Christian, in the most mature modern church. Lifeway uh, did some research, and they found that they're asking born-again evangelical Christians. So it's not the, the common, it's not just the, the um, common population, or even people who identify as Christians. These are born-again Christians. And they found that only 13% of, of, of those who claim to be born-again evangelicals even come close to tithing. And this was even amazing. It said 19%, nearly one in five of people, again, who are self-proclaimed evangelicals, who are born-again born Give nothing to the work of the Lord. Nothing. It doesn't matter what people say. It's how they spend their money that tells them what they really believe, tells what they really believe. The next characteristic we see of this model congregation is they practice hospitality. Hospitality. We see this in verse 46, that they not only worshiped in the temple, but they also worshiped individual homes, as well as sharing meals in these homes. And hospitality was really essential for the early church because when people joined the church, they were often rejected by their families, their Jewish families or their pagan families. But the gospel called people to a higher allegiance than family. The highest allegiance wasn't our natural family, but our highest allegiance is God. In fact, the gospel often separated families. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, when people were converted, they rejected the pagan ways and, and, and the, of the, of the Jewish ways of their families. And this rejection was often seen as rejection of the family itself. And oftentimes these people were kicked out of their families. They were, they, they were outside the, the help of protection of the community that they had. They were on their own. And the Christian church then became their family, their new family. And we see this even in the adoption of, of words like brother and sister and mother within the church. And you can see that the community is essential for survival. We need each other. We need other people. We need to belong to a group. It's much more than just physical, practical help. You know, if you have money, you can hire someone uh, to do your practical needs. 
But this is this is even more. It's, it's different than than, than, than real family. Uh, being part of the of, of the uh, family fellowship. This is different from becoming part of a family. And one thing that was unique about the early church is that it was open to all. It transcended all social customs. It didn't matter what race or ethnicity or amount of wealth. All were welcome into this community. And this fact made Christianity extremely, extremely attractive to outcasts, uh, attractive to the poor, attractive to the marginalized or, or the orphan or the widow. They all found a place of acceptance. People who were often unwelcome wherever they went, they found that they were welcome in the church. And do people feel that type of welcome here at Northgate? Do they feel welcome? We need to understand also that, that hospitality is not entertaining. Sometimes you might think it's entertaining. Entertaining is not natural. Entertaining is a special time. Entertaining is when we put our, our best face forward. It's not the way we normally live. It, it's something special. It's something that takes a lot of work. We're trying to impress others. It's something that could be very intimidating. Hospitality is not this. Hospitality is simply sharing our lives simply inviting other people into our lives. They see us how we truly are, how we live. They see the mess. We don't clean up our house. They see the way we normally live. They join in us what we do. We hang out together. We eat together. And sometimes we even do household chores together. This is hospitality. My friends, hospitality is powerful. Because we live in a time when authentic relationships are few, when people are lonely, especially if people are away from their family. Um, you know, Christian hospitality could be their lifeline. I, I think of people who came to this church who've worshipped at Northgate over the couple of years where they, they were away from their family. People like Charles, who was here. People like Alex, who Lennon and Bonnie saw yesterday. Or people like David Barron. These are people who, who were away from their family and, and the church became the lifeline of their community. So hospitality is a characteristic of this model congregation. Another characteristic of this model congregation is that they were filled with joy. And we see this in the end of verse 46 and the beginning of verse 47. They were described as glad, generous, praising God. And all of these are signs of of genuine joy. And this joy is attractive. Uh, And the question, are we filled with joy? Do people look at us and they see us as a joyful people? Are we glad? Are we generous? Are we always praising God? The reality is there's much sorrow in this fallen world. We, we heard it in our prayer requests. And not only do we experience it personally, but because of our connectivity, we hear about it almost instantaneously. We hear about rocket attacks in Israel across the world almost instantaneously. We hear and pray for people that we don't personally know. Often we do that. People are going through great difficulties. We hear about fires and wars and earthquakes and violence and crime and illnesses. And all of this takes a, a heavy toll on us. But as Christians, we don't look to this world. We look beyond this fallen world. The source of our joy is the triune God himself, and that's where we look to it. And we become a conduit of that joy, and we spread that joy out to others. And this joy is attractive to those who don't have it. They see us that who have it, and that's what they want. My question is, is that the way we are? Is that the way we are? Do they see that joy in us? The last characteristic of this model congregation I want to look at this morning is that not only were they inwardly focused, but they were engaged with those outside of their community, outside of their church. We see this in verse 47 that describes them as having favor with all people. And they had favor with all people because they were a blessing to all people, both believer and unbeliever, both Jew and Gentile. My question is, do we have favor with all people? 
When people think about Christians, when people think of us as members of Northgate, do they do we have favor with them? Do they see us as a net positive to the community or a net negative? Or do they even know we exist? Do we meet real and practical needs? A few weeks ago during an evening service, I remember two women came in here with, with, with uh, two children, and they were fleeing a domestic abuse situation. <clears throat> they stopped at our church. They said they were looking for a church. And sadly, again, it was in the evening, and there were very few churches that were open, but they came here looking for help. We, we, they used our bathroom. We gave them food that we had. I remember Nathan took them and filled up their, their car with gas. We gave them real, tangible hope. We prayed with them. We let others. We, our, our building is not terribly impressive, but we let others use it. We let the Indian Fellowship, they meet here. We let the homeschool theater program, they come here and meet at our, our small church. I remember even Young Life, when they, when they lost their space at Covenant Church, I was talking to the Young Life leader, and I offered, I said, we don't have much, but you're welcome to use it. Now, thankfully, they found someone else, another area. But these are ways that we can serve our community. Other ways, remember when, when we had the storms, we had the tornadoes and, and uh, Hurricane Michael came through. We were hosting work for us. I think we had over 100 people come through this church through, through our denominational connection with M&A. And they were here. They were, they were cutting up trees. Well, again, as a small church, we had the impact as churches 20, hours, 20 times our size because of our connection with M&A. And, and we had other things. We had, the, remember the ASU meal? I remember Debbie knows that very well, making all that chicken that we did. For about 120 athletes, football players, they eat a lot. Football players and cross-country and volleyball players. And we got a chance to love ASU and, and got the chance to share the gospel with them. And I even had opportunities to go and speak at, at ASU other times as well. We have times when we went downtown and we served the, uh, the homeless with First Methodists. We've, we've worked with the Salvation Army. We collect much food for the Salvation Army. I remember one time, because I'm on the board of the Salvation Army, I got an email from, from the captain. said, we just had one of our air conditioners go out. We need help. It's going to cost us such and such. I sent an email to the church. We collected almost $1,500 the next day to help them. Right, that, that's the type of thing that we're doing. This is the way the Lord's using us. The Kendrick movie's brother, the Kendrick brother's movie that we were doing, we provided food. We prayed for them. We even provided some people here who were extras in the movie. Those are things that we can do. But there's still more. There's still more that we can do. And that's what we need to be praying for. We need to be, look, each one of us need to be looking for these opportunities. We need to talk about this when we meet in a few weeks for our brainstorming meeting. How can we serve our community? So we tie all this together. As we looked at all these characteristics of this model congregation, and if you missed them, it's applied doctrine. It's worship. It's awesome. It's, it's awe at God's presence. It's radical generosity. It's hospitality. It's genuine joy. It's community engagement. Notice what the effects of these characteristics are on the church. And the last sentence of our passage says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The Lord added day by day those being saved. This wasn't one or two once in a while. This was a constant daily stream, a constant daily occurrence, those who are being saved. Do we see that at Northgate? Do we see people coming daily, coming to Christ through the ministry of our church? Do we want to see that? Do we want to be that type of church? Do we want to see Northgate doing that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Northgate would look like if people were daily being saved through the ministry? People daily coming to the Lord? The Lord was adding daily to the number? Can you imagine what Albany would look like? It's amazing. Can you imagine what the world would look like if it was filled with tens of thousands of churches that were like this model congregation, and people were coming daily to the Lord. That's what we're called to be. 
See, there, there are all kinds of church growth strategies and gimmicks, and I get emails about them all the time. But my friends, we don't need gimmicks. God's word shows us how to build his church. We're not to use the, the world's methods. We are to use God's methods. And we see that here in these characteristics. These characteristics that we looked at today are not only characteristics of the model church, these are characteristics of the soul-winning church. And my friends, our call is to be this kind of church. This is our application this morning, is to make Northgate. And we, we've got a lot of good things, but we've got a lot of areas where we fall short. But our call this morning is to make Northgate this kind of church. Pray for the Lord. Pray for the Lord to make us a soul-winning church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the example of this church that we looked at. And Lord, we know that we fall short in many ways. But Father, you are the one who empowers us. So I pray, Father, you will make us this type of church. You will make us a church that loves your word, that loves your teaching, that loves each other, that loves to worship, wants to spend time in worship. And Father, open our eyes to your awe in our presence. We want to, we want to see you working in, our, in, a, in an amazing way. And Father, change our hearts. Give us a radical generosity, not hoarding what we have, but giving it, holding it open hand. Father, allow us to provide hospitality, to invite people into our lives. And Father, fill us with a genuine joy that comes from knowing you, that comes from your Holy Spirit. And Lord, not keep us focused inwardly, but focused outwardly, that we will engage our community. And Father, then we want to see the amazing fruit of that. Lord, we want to see people coming to Christ, people being saved day by day. Father, we pray that you will do that through us. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.